Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I'm really excited about today's conversation because it's on a topic that is really at the heart of what this podcast has been about from the beginning, which is exploring the intersection of psychedelics with Eastern spirituality, specifically psychedelics and Buddhism. As I've told people on the show before, you know, this podcast in many ways grew out of an ayahuasca retreat that I did in Peru last May, which was a very unique retreat in that it's the only retreat I know, and I believe that's out there, that really integrates ayahuasca with Buddhism. It's organized by a woman named Spring Washam, who was a guest on the show and who is a fabulous human being. And Spring's really doing some great work that gets at the heart of a big debate that's happening within the Buddhist community right now in the U.S., It obviously leaks over and this discussion is very relevant for other people who are just interested in plant medicine and psychedelics as a way to either explore their own mind or to heal from trauma or depression or any other issues they have. But there's been a big debate in Buddhism, in Buddhist circles around to what extent is this consistent with the values that the Buddha taught? If Buddhism is really about having a cultivating a clear mindset and having a right view that's properly oriented to how the world works and how to teach you how to act in the world ethically for the benefit of yourselves and other beings, then is taking what's been called an intoxicating substance. There's a prohibition against that in Buddhism. And some people feel that taking a psychedelic clearly violates that. Others say, no, if you look at how they talked about intoxicating substances, they meant alcohol. And we can talk about even if we should have to adhere to some rule that was made 1500 years ago anyways, which is a relevant debate. But many take issue with the fact that this shouldn't fall under an intoxicating substance, that this is very much not something that intoxicates, but something that helps you to orient you towards a right view that gives you real insight into your own personality, into the nature of your own hangups, into your own shadow. And that helps you to integrate that into the light and to become a more whole human being. And so, and therefore is very consistent with spiritual practices. And this is a debate that in a conversation that I really explore over the course of this next hour and a half with My guest, he's very much the ideal person to be talking about this with. His name is Dr. Douglas Osto. And Douglas is a senior lecturer in the philosophy and Asian studies program at Massey University, which is in New Zealand. He has written several books. He's a scholar of Indian religions, in particular Buddhism. And his most recent book is called Altered States, Buddhism and Psychedelic Spirituality in America. So he really is an ideal person to have on this show and to talk about this topic. He's written a very timely book in this respect, while this conversation is very hot. Just to give you a sense of Douglas's background, 
he has a master's in theological study from Harvard University. He also has another master's, uh, I believe, in Asian languages from the University of Washington. And his PhD is from the School of Oriental Studies, SOAS, in London. His areas of specialty are Mahayana Buddhism, South Asian Buddhism, Indian philosophy, and contemporary Buddhist practice. And over the course of the next hour and a half, you know, Douglas and I first talk about his book and the difficulties even in, in writing uh, a book, which I think mirror the larger conversation in terms of coming out and difficulties in speaking about psychedelics. But he talks about the difficulties of that in an academic context, and then he really walks us through his book and told us what he found that was really interesting and what he learned and sort of how the landscape of psychedelics and Buddhism has changed since first big book came out on the topic, which was Zigzag Zen in the early 2000s. And then we really begin to get into this discussion um, and come at it from various angles around this debate that's happening now around to what extent are psychedelics, whatever you want to call them, entheogens, plant medicine, compatible with a, a Buddhist path. And we talk about Buddhism, but you can fill in the blank because it's really, you could say a spiritual path generally, because I think it's about a larger discussion of what is ethical in terms of altering your consciousness and for what purposes. Um, I've been very unequivocal in the fact that I think it is completely consistent with spiritual practices, including a Buddhist path. And I think that the pervasiveness of the use of these substances throughout human history, where they are consistently used by different societies all around the world, again and again, in a structured spiritual context used for very clear intention purposes around personal growth rather than recreation. And the ubiquity of these substances shows in my mind that there is value for them cross-culturally and across time. But we really try to engage all the different sides in this debate and, and really unpack it. And then later in the conversation, we also even get to Douglas's later work, which is on the revival of Kashmir Shaivism, which is a very popular form of Indian. It's really a series of different Indian traditions that is very much experiencing a resurgence of interest, particularly in communities that are either in the yoga community or tangential to the yoga community, new age, whatever community in the West. So brief note before I cut into that conversation with Douglas, supporting the show. If you enjoy this conversation, especially if you've been listening for a little while now, I would really ask you to consider supporting the show on Patreon. I absolutely love having these conversations and I want to continue to put these out and I want to even expand what I offer to include more content, more video as well. But to do that, I have to make it a sustainable project. I'm not going to take, I have no plans to take ads, uh, to use ads to take any kind of corporate money for a number of reasons. One, I hate ads. Two, I want to be able to talk about controversial topics on this show. And I don't want to have any outside influence in any way, shape, or form attempting to influence the content of this show. But to do that, I have to make this sustainable. I spend a lot of uh, time on this project and just got to figure out a way to sort of make this work. Certainly not doing this to get rich, but 
do need to have some sort of an income stream from this and and to also be able to expand those offerings as well and, and do things that are more interesting and relevant for the audience. So if you're enjoying it, I would seriously ask you to consider going to the Patreon page for the show, which is patreon.com slash hacking the self into making a small contribution. The $2 contribution level will give you access to the bonus content of the show. I recently have started and you'll find it in this conversation as well. I will release still most of the conversation available to the public, but the last half of the show, sometimes the last third will be available to Patreon subscribers and want to not only incentivize people, not only with additional content, but also with from the podcast, but I'll also offer other content just for Patreon supporters. I really want it to be a community of people as I, I want the conversation to be a community with the larger audience of people as well who listen to this show. But like I said, important that I figure out a way to make this show sustainable since it is, I'm not going to take advertising money. So thank you for considering that. There are other ways to support the show as well, though. If you would be willing to go to leave a review for this show, for example, on iTunes or Stitcher, or Google Music Store, whatever you use, taking two minutes to do that and to leave a review is immensely helpful in terms of getting the word out about the show. Also, of course, sharing the conversation across your social media platforms or to friends and family is very helpful as well. So thank you so much. I would love to hear from you if you're enjoying the show. So please you know, visit the Hacking the Self Facebook page or at Hacking the Self on Twitter or send me an email, hackingtheself at gmail.com to let me know what you're enjoying about the show, what you'd like to see more of, constructive criticism. I'm absolutely open and would love to hear all of the above. So thank you so much for listening. And now I give you my conversation with Dr. Douglas Osto. So Douglas, I just wanted to start by thanking you so much for making the time to speak with me. Oh yeah, my pleasure. When I heard you interviewed on several other podcasts, I knew that in the title of your book, I knew that uh, we were going to have a lot of common ground. Undoubtedly, we'll probably only be able to scratch the surface of it, but uh, I'm really excited to be speaking with you. Yeah, I noticed that too, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a good, a good chat about various consciousness-related topics. Absolutely. Well, I've given our audience an introduction to your to your background in, in my opening narration, and I've told them a little bit about the book, But and that's what I want to spend a lot of time talking about today is your new book, Altered States, Buddhism, and Psychedelic Spirituality in America. And I thought a good starting point might be, before we talk about it, is just sort of talking about the difficulties in even undertaking a project like this for someone like yourself. And I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to now, even though they're not in academia, there's a big psychedelic kind of coming out of the closet happening for a lot of people in part. That's what the inception of this show was about. And there's some other podcasts that are about that. And for a lot of people out there, it's very difficult depending on their job. You know, for me, I was in a K-12 school, so I couldn't talk about it before. And depending on people's profession, it's really tough. And academia, it might not seem like such a difficult terrain for some people uh, on the outside because you'd think, well, professors tend to be liberal. A lot of them have tenure. 
But in some ways, it's particularly difficult. And I'm familiar with some of the challenges to sort of the, the Western notions of objectivity on which uh, academia is really predicated. But I'm wondering if you can, can really elaborate on that and talk about uh, sort of your trepidation and even undertaking this project. Yeah, well, I mean, issues of objectivity aside, you you do have to be careful what subjects you choose to, you know, do your research on, write your books on. It is always possible to undertake something that could be career limiting. And writing this book, I think it was interesting. The timing was interesting because, as you said, we're sort of undergoing a renaissance right now. And uh, but it's still, you know, especially I mean, my my real areas, I'm trained in in religious studies and my particular area is is Buddhist studies and in Buddhist studies, you know, um, traditionally, internationally has been a kind of a conservative club that tended to stick to studying kind of um, Buddhist texts and translating them in that very traditional objective paradigm. I mean, over time, that's sort of given given way to a more anthropological approach. And also, even the field of, say, studying American Buddhism, when I was a graduate student, say, at Harvard and University of Washington, it was only just becoming an accepted area of study, studying American Buddhism. And, And actually, some of the people that I was studying with were the first people to really publish in the area. So it was still kind of cutting edge, still a bit risky topic to talk about. But also I felt that, you know, in some ways the timing was right, you know, because you have the the kind of heyday of, you know, psychedelic culture in the late 60s and early 70s. And then there was a kind of a backlash that occurred afterwards into the um, 80s and, and part of the early 90s. But then, you know, with opening up a research and sort of change of attitudes, it was right around, you know, in the 2000s where you started to see uh, well, I, I started to see a kind of a sea change. And it was also a good time because some of the early figures in the movement are still around, but yet they've gotten sort of far enough away from the 60s that they're ready to talk about it in, in more kind of explicit detail. And then also it seemed to me that it was a story worth telling. And so, yeah, you're right. There was a bit of a, there's some risk talking. Of, well, because you're talking about drugs is basically what, what we're talking about here, right? And that's the risky part because especially psychedelics have always been a flashpoint in Western culture, you know, always been. And, and people have very strong feelings and very strong opinions about it. And I saw that during the course of my research too. And so to take on a topic like it's, it's, like, it's the same thing as if, say, you were going to write about sex, in a lot of ways, you know, it's in some ways it's a taboo subject. It, it makes people uncomfortable. And so, um, yeah, so there was definitely some risk involved. So I, w- I would agree with your assessment there. Well, tip of the hat to you for being willing to talk about it, because I know that did take some courage. And I think you're right, though. I mean, the timing is definitely right. And I think your your book really timed it well. So, so well done on that point. How, how do you think it's been received not only popularly, but in academics circles. Good question. First of all, I, 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 when you were saying that to me, I kind of wanted to congratulate myself too, because I had no idea that. I mean, <laughs> I knew that 
things were becoming more liberal. But even in the time, you know, because most of this work that was done in, on this book around 2010. And so even the amount that's happened in the last eight years, it was kind of like it, it kind of really struck, sort of struck just when the iron was was uh, was getting hot. So I'm surprised. I'm personally surprised at uh, just how relevant the topic is right now. But um, on the on the other issue that you mentioned is uh, it's got yeah. gotten some pretty good reviews, some sort of mixed reviews. I'm not. I haven't really. The reviews that I've gotten so far have been more. Uh, more from like psychology, from the psychology side of things and the sort of psych side of things, less from the kind of religious studies, Buddhist studies side of things. So being a scholar of religious studies and Buddhist studies, I'm kind of looking forward to what I would hope, you know, to hear from, like, say, more of my peer group, because someone coming at it from point of view of, say, psychology, for example, might have a different take. So I think people have said some, you know, I mean, academics are paid to be critical. So there's, you know, people <laughs> have good things to say, bad things to say, don't necessarily agree with the bad things they say about it. But I mean, I'm gonna, it's my baby. So I'm gonna, def <laughs> I'm gonna defend it. But I mean, any kind of, you know what they say is like any news is good news in the sense that if it's getting reviewed, that's a good thing. Because the worst thing that anybody wants when they write an academic book is, you know, to be like a rock in the pond and it just, you know, makes, has no, no impact at all. So the fact that people are reviewing it, I, I, I take it as a good sign, even if they're not like a hundred percent, a hundred percent positive, but it, it has been taken seriously, which is another thing that you want too. I think having Columbia uh, University Press as a publisher really helped in that regard, because if it was some independent or sort of fringe publisher, I don't, I don't think it would have really helped uh, propel it um, more into the mainstream. And but because it has that that big name publisher attached to it, I think it it kind of demands, at least in certain circles, to be taken more seriously than it might otherwise have been. Right, that makes sense. Well, I'm so glad that it worked out in in UF created this uh, this wonderful work because I think it is really relevant, as you said, and I heard you talk about this on other podcasts as well, but you, you really just mentioned it right here. It's sort of the central thesis of the book is kind of, you, you'd notice that there wasn't a lot really that had happened in terms of people talking about Buddhism and psychedelic since the 60s. We had, you know, zigzags and come out which was early 2000s, which is also a, a book worth checking out for people who are listening who haven't read it. And that was really interviewing a lot of academics and practitioners and basically the, the long and the short of it was it just demonstrated sort of the big influence of psychedelics on people who then be went on to become big figures in the Buddhist community in the West. And so it really established that, but it, it's gone on to be somewhat contentious still, and there really hasn't been much written about it since. So that's what you've really been trying to undertake, right? Sort of talking about what has really unfolded since Zigzag Zen came out, which was what, like around, was that early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. I think it, I mean, in a lot of ways, Zig, Zigzag Zen, uh, a lot of the content that was in the, I think it was the 95 or 96 edition of Tricycle Magazine was reproduced in Zigzag Zen with some additional material. So Zigzag Zen came out early 2000s and the Tricycle Magazine was, oh, was mid-1990s. So yeah, so not 
a lot had been done since then. I mean, that said, I mean, my book would have never been written if it weren't for Zigzag Zen because it really broke, it broke new ground, but it broke new ground in a more, in a more kind of popular way and, and very much from a kind of not non-academic sort of way. Um, and so what I wanted to do was take the conversation further in two directions. One was to, to try to bring some of that up to date was going on and then also bring a little bit more kind of scholarly rigor to the whole thing and look at some of the bigger kind of sociological issues and from you know religious studies perspective and and sort of bring that kind of academic rigor to the topic because it seemed to me that you know just from reading zigzag zen alone there was enough going on there that it was worth um, paying attention to from an academic point of view. So in a lot of ways, you can see that my book is a kind of follow-up to that. And a lot of the people that I interviewed for my book and who really got me started in my fieldwork for this book uh, were contributors to, to Zig, Zigzag Zen. So I definitely take my hat off to Alan Bediner and, and Alex Gray and, and the contributors to that volume, especially Eric Davis too. I mean, his, his article in Zigzag Zen, The Paisley Gate, really got me asking questions that were really drivers for, for my book. So I think that's a good way of sort of putting, putting my book in, into kind of perspective with that one. Yeah, Eric's great. He was on the show recently. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Uh, he's he's definitely he's a fun person to talk to. He's got a real uh, neat uh, neat take on things. Um, he's a very good speaker, and it was fun to do the interview with him too because it was sort of it kind of put a nice. Uh, it was like the first one I did, I think, and it was a nice um, kind of tied the whole thing up into a nice little bow. You know, having having been inspired, especially by his article in, in Zigzag Zen, and then. Uh, and then getting to interview him about my book at the end, it was pretty cool. So, and I also interviewed him for my book too. So there's a fair amount of, of, of uh, I think, especially in the end, uh, my final chapter, I talk about and some length the interview that I had with, uh, with Eric. So, Excellent. Yeah. For those in the audience who aren't familiar, his work is, is definitely worth checking out as well. So can you kind of begin to walk us through sort of a tour of the landscape here in terms of what you noticed you know, since since Zigzags and came out. Well, it was interesting because a lot there's a sort of rhetoric that existed that when you talk about Buddhism in relation to psychedelics, that you know the baby boomers would be like, okay, well, you know that's what we did back in the day, and then we we got serious about our Buddhist practice, and and so we stopped, and so there's this kind of historical narrative that I knew was only partial because I knew that the whole um, mixing of, you know, the Buddhist practice and use of psychedelics had continued since that time, you know, having been an insider into, into some of that myself. And so, so I was interested in how, um, how things had changed in what I basically, I'm basically looking at two different communities. You have what I call the American Buddhist group, uh, and particularly the con- American Buddhist converts. So tending to be white, upper, middle-class, educated people who are interested in Buddhism from a kind of meditation perspective. And then you have a what I call the psychedelic spiritualists, who are people who use psychedelics for religious or spiritual purposes. And so you basically, you have these two subcultures. And my general sort of outlook of my book is that they both emerged more or less the same time 
in the United States beginning in the 1950s. And there's been a lot of sort of cross-fertilization and, and sharing of, of ideas and information and outlook between these two subcultures um, from that time. And so there was there was a bit of a backlash that happened in in the seven, late, sort of later seventies and eighties against drugs. There was a whole war on drugs, and psychedelics, you know, more or less were made were made illegal. And and it was also during a time where a lot of Buddhist communities, American Buddhist communities, sanghas, meditation centers were becoming more established. And so the talk about psychedelics became. A lot less acceptable. But while this was going on, you still have this sort of subculture within a subculture of people that are using psychedelics as a part of their their spiritual practice while at the same time practicing Buddhism. And so what I wanted to do in my book is I, I spend a couple chapters just looking at the history of the psychedelic spirituality in the United States and the history of, of Buddhism in the United States. And then I, I, I have three chapters, which is, which are really the core of the book where I, I look at people who, who tried psychedelics, maybe got something out of them and then stopped people who continue to use psychedelics as part of their spiritual practice. And then, you know, some, you know, people that would fall somewhere sort of in between. And I look at this sort of metaphor of what I call opening the door that people use this kind of a number of people have used psychedelics as kind of a they have an intense experience that opens them up to a kind of a new perspective and then they consolidate that through buddhism sometimes they continue to use psychedelics sometimes they don't and so i try to look at a whole wide range of different attitudes and practices that that sort of fit into these to these different categories and then i bring some some of the debates to the fore sort of pro and con the use of, of psychedelics in relationship to Buddhism. I mean, so that, that's basically like the nuts and bolts of the, of the book. Yeah. Once again, just in terms of the timeliness of this discussion, I, I want to just sort of say a, a personal note on which I see it really emerging now, you know, among practitioners. And of course, that's what you're referring to, right? This isn't about among academics. This is a lot about practitioners, people who are, you know, going to Wipassana centers and Zen centers and other places like that. So last May, I did an ayahuasca retreat with in Peru with a woman named Spring Washam, who is a teacher at Spirit Rock. And she runs a retreat center in Peru called Lotus Vine Journeys that's all about integrating Buddhism and ayahuasca. And Spring is also someone who has trained for many years as a teacher at Spirit Rock. She was mentored by Jack Cornfield. She sits on the Council of Teachers at Spirit Rock. So she's very much nestled into the sort of heart of that community, yet she's doing this more radical work. And I know just from having conversations with Spring, and she was on this podcast as well, is that it's very contentious and it's very controversial. And some people are who are senior are quite supportive, but even they are a little reluctant to speak out and other people are quite critical. And so this conversation is just really, really timely now. And one thing you said really sort of, I think, gets to the, the heart of this discussion is there's this popular view that they have a role to play, but then kind of you grow out of them, right? And I think what really shifted my view on this, not that I wasn't open to that before because I was still using psychedelics occasionally, but 
I think to see someone like Spring, who's a very advanced practitioner, also say, hey, I wasn't doing any psychedelics at all. And I was doing three month long silent retreats and having, you know, trauma come up again and again. And, you know, Vipassana and other types or Metta, other types of meditation practice wasn't addressing that. And she started working with shamanic practices and rituals and that did. So my point is, I think part of the discussion around this is related to perhaps an unwillingness to acknowledge the limitations of meditation or Buddhist practices for addressing certain aspects, perhaps such as trauma. And I'm wondering what you think of that particular framing of the issue. Yeah. Do you see that um, as a particular cause? I, yeah, I think in in certain circles, there's definitely this view that that Buddhism is a is a is a self contained thing. I think in a, you could call them more traditionalists have this view that Buddhism is a self contained system that it doesn't require anything you know needed from the outside to to complete it or make it better and that even worse um you know that taking psychedelic could be a violation of of the you know fifth precept to abstain from intoxicants and so they could actually cloud your mind or damage your mind or something like that and so yeah there's a real strong resistance in some in some groups to an approach like that or even to just improvising, right? I mean, I've had some Buddhist teachers say to me that, you know, this is a yogic path with, um, you know, centuries of, of tradition behind it. Improvisation is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> you know, you might think that it's, you know, you're doing stuff that's speeding you along uh, on the path, but you might end up just being, you know, setting yourself back. And so there's definitely that camp. I mean, I mean, even what, what you've been telling me that, that what's her name, Sprint? What she's doing, you know, if I had, you know, if I had known about that when I was doing my research, because even that kind of open, you know, 10 years ago, you know, or so that kind of open affiliation and mixing with ayahuasca is quite unique. But it's, it's funny because only just a couple of years ago, I was I was I was sitting with, with a well-respected Zen group in North America. And recently that there was a big, they had a big scandal because one of their, their, you know, their leading teachers had left and, uh, and had been secretly taking part in these ayahuasca circles and then was asked to leave and then started up his own, his own sort of community that again, it's, you know, using ayahuasca and, you know, practicing Zen. And I think one of the things I do talk about in, in my, my book is that ayahuasca, you know, first there was, M, you know, first there was MDMA, you know, in the '80s, which was kind of a new thing, but but now this this call what they call you know ayahuasca, you know tourism or you know interest in ayahuasca shamanism, is is huge, is massive, and and it's it began quite a few decades ago, but it's it seems to only be gaining you know gaining traction, and and I've met people who who were very traditionally traditionally Buddhist, you know, maybe even grew up in a Buddhist household, Asian American household, and then tried and, and thought that, you know, psychedelics had nothing to do with Buddhism at all. And then they tried ay- ayahuasca in one of these traditional settings and then went completely 180 in the other direction and now don't even really consider themselves, you know, Buddhist, but much more of, you know, much more in that camp. So the, the movement that's happening, it's much more back and forth 
you know, across what we could call like a, a flashpoint maybe than a kind of unilateral, you know, yeah, I tripped and I, you know, I saw God or whatever. And now I want to, I want to, you know, integrate that in, you know, through meditation. So that, that sort of progression is, is is a myth. I mean, it's true in some people's case, but it's definitely not true in, in everyone's case. Yeah, I think there are a few layers to this. And I want to start by talking about a discussion within the Buddhist community, maybe even the diehard of the Buddhist community. And then I want to expand it beyond that because I don't, I'm not convinced of fully accepting some of the premises of these discussions, but I do want to talk about this big debate around the fifth precept, because that's very central. And so perhaps we can start, well, well, first of all, I'll, I'll say my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's something along the lines of, you know, you should not do a number of, of things are these precepts. And they're pretty standard. You would see in, in different religions, right? You shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie. And the fifth one is you should not take intoxicants. Now, what I want you to say when you correct me is if you could sort of talk about the what is the specific term in, I'm not sure if it's Pali or whatever language this is written for, and and do you agree or disagree with this translation of, of uh, intoxicant? Oh, right. You know, I, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even recall just offhand what, what the particular Pali word that is used to translate intoxicants. I have to go and sort of check my dictionary. Yeah. Which would obviously be very relevant. I would love to talk to someone who 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 knows that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get sort of digress into a philological discussion here, but you know, there's certain poly words that it's quite sort of contentious as to what exactly they mean. For instance, there's an account of you know the Buddha having eaten something before he died, and it, it basically translates as pig's delight. So some people have said that, okay, this means that he actually ate pork before he died. Other people have argued that, no, actually it means that he had some kind of truffle. You know, what what does this compound mean, pig's delight? But I think the, po- the poly word is fairly unambiguous in the sense of it, it means a kind of you know, something that clouds the mind, right? An intoxicant that will, and I, and I think specifically they probably had in mind something like alcohol. They don't list, you know, particular intoxicants, but it's the, the general sort of interpretation of intoxicants means that you shouldn't drink alcohol, right? And, and whether, and, and probably, possibly referring to cannabis too. It's hard to know how far back use of cannabis goes in India. But, and so as far as that goes, then, you know, then the question is, well, okay, how do you decide now that we have all these other substances that say the Buddha didn't know about, how do you decide whether something actually qualifies as an intoxicant or not? And most Buddhist groups that I know would say, you know, alcohol, for instance, is an intoxicant. Whereas, say, tea, for example, is okay. Tea or coffee is, say, okay. And by extension, people have said then that, you know, things like, you know, LSD or psilocybin or mescaline would also be intoxicants. But then other other modern Buddhists have, have actually argued that, that they're not because they don't. Because I, I think the phrasing is something like, you know, intoxicant that leads to heedlessness, because the, the idea was that if your mind becomes clouded in a certain way, it's going to cause you to act in an unskillful way. You know, this is what's crucial in Buddhism. You have, 
you have activity that's either meritorious or demeritorious. In other words, it's good karma or bad karma. And you have activity that's either skillful or unskillful. And so, you know, if you do, the reason why you're, you're not supposed to kill or steal or lie is because it's bad karma, right? And then the uh, the fourth precept is against sexual misconduct, right? So if you, if you're, you know, if you're cheating on your partner, say something like that. And so those are fairly straightforward, right? It's bad karma to kill, you know, say to kill something. But the reason why intoxicant is supposed to be bad is because it, it makes you more likely to do something that is going to be demeritorious or generate bad karma or be unskillful on the path. And so then the question is, does something like psilocybin or LSD or mescaline under all conditions, under all circumstances, create this kind of state where you're going to generate you know, bad karma? or it's going to be unskillful. And so then the question then becomes, you know, some groups definitely say, yes, that that is the case. Other people are not, are not so sure. Some people see something like say mescaline as a, as a kind of medicine. In that sense, it could be quite skillful to do rather than being unskillful. So it really Rather than hinging on what the actual meaning of the the poly word is, it's more it's more interpretive as to what what do we mean when we say intoxicant, right? And even before we act, I mean, sort of that first foundational step on the eightfold path, right, is right view, right? You first have to orient yourself towards the right view. So I guess if you can argue that psychedelics, that ayahuasca, that these sacred medicines are something that orients you towards right view, then that could be consistent with it. But of course, I, get, I mean, that's that's the debate, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm just trying to think also about the historical context at the time. And once again, not that we're hostage to history, but I'm just thinking of how this is relevant. I, you know, I was a history teacher, so I enjoyed these kind of things. But you know, in the Buddha's time, obviously, when the Buddha grew up there, he certainly undoubtedly learned about the Vedas, which had been around, you know, much longer than he had been. And in the Vedas, they talk about the importance of Soma. And we can debate what the Soma is. And without even necessarily accepting the thesis of someone like R. Gordon Wasson, Wasson and, and Wendy Doniger, that the Soma was... Um, M&M muscaria or a particular kind of mushroom, it seems pretty undeniable that it was some kind of psychoactive plant. Yeah, no, I would agree. Yeah, that it did have, I mean, some people have argued now that it was a phaedra, which is a very, which is a kind of stimulant. So, but yeah, it did have, it definitely had some kind of intoxicating or, or psychoactive component to it. Absolutely. I mean, when you read the Rig Veda, we have drunk the Soma, it doesn't sound like a stimulant. We have drunk the Soma, we have met the gods, we have seen the light. I mean, <laughs> that's not a stimulant to me. It sounds like a very completely paradigm shattering experience, whatever right. that is. But clearly there was precedent already in India for psychoactive substances. And Buddhists can say that's fine, but we have a different path. But it would make sense that they were already around in the Buddhist time. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I guess the the idea is that at a certain point, the original sort of ingredients for Soma were lost. 
And so there was a kind of non-psychoactive substitute was used to to replace it. And so did that happen by the time of the Buddha? I don't know that. Yeah, I actually, I wouldn't know the answer to that. So that, that's a good question from a historical from a historical point of view. I mean, all right, so we can let's assume for the time being that it was still around as a psychoactive substance. So so assuming that it was, did the Buddha know about it? I'm just wondering, like, so did he know about it and this was in the possible, you know, debate or, or possibly even usage at the time? Because it seems like there's no question it was in India in the time, which doesn't guarantee it that it was in his part of India or he knew about it, but... Um, it would it would seem logical that it was part of the discussion. Yeah, and it's funny because it's sort of like there's sort of an absence of evidence. If there is a discussion in the Pali sources, I've not come across it where he specifically addresses sort of the issue of soma. I've in the meantime, just while we were chatting, I looked up the Pali word that I couldn't I couldn't remember for intoxicants, and the word's actually it's uh, maja, and maja. Yeah, and it means it's from Vedic Madha Madhya. It means intoxicant, intoxicating drink, wine, spirits. So there was definitely a kind of alcoholic sort of take on what what an intoxicant is in in this. Uh, yeah, and a majika, for example, is a dealer in strong drink, uh, like a tavern a tavern keeper or something like that. So the the idea was basically when it says to abstain from maja. It's talking about booze. And these are not sort of like geeky discussions. I mean, you said I don't want to go on a side tangent on philology, but 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 I'm actually I don't mind that at all, because this is totally relevant. What the original word was, you know, we we, the the amount of confusion that has come in history and specifically religion because of words that were translated differently is just I mean, beyond what we could possibly fathom. Like, we need to know these ideas were created in a particular time and place. And if that word was associated to connote with spirits, now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you can't be against psychedelic use today and talk about how it's inconsistent with Buddhist practice, but we also need, or, or vice versa, right, that we have to be held hostage to it, even if the Buddha meant that you shouldn't take intoxicating substances, and that would include psychoactive plants. But the fact that it is connotated with alcohol is relevant. It's relevant to the discussion that we're having today. And I'm, I sense that that original kind of scholarly philological discussion is, is not even being addressed in some of these debates. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, here I'm looking up, you know, good old Wikipedia, and I found that the Here's a translation of the fifth precept. It says, I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs, which lead to carelessness. And then the actual Pali is, is, is Sura Meurayamaja uh, Pamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami. And so it's actually three things we have. What do we have? We have Sura Maraya, Maja are all, and it says right here, are all alcoholic beverages. It says in some modern translations is rendered more broadly as intoxicants, liquors, and drugs. But seeing as all three of these things are referring to that they mention, the, the Sura, Maraya, Maja are all alcoholic beverages. There's definitely a, a kind of an alcoholic 
uh, a very heavily alcoholic bias on that. Now, to back up from that, though, traditions are always undergoing constant transformation. So I think sometimes people have this idea that if we go back to the original right? What the Buddha actually said, then that's what's true. Well, the thing is, we don't really know what the Buddha said. (laughs) And he probably didn't say it in Pali either, because um, as far as we can tell from a scholarly point of view, Pali was a later, more of a kind of textual language that developed and probably was not the dialect the Buddha spoke. I mean, Buddha probably spoke a number of different dialects. And also, Pali doesn't always lay claim to being the earliest versions of things. We have um, other texts in Sanskrit, and particularly in Chinese, the Chinese Agamas date back to just as early, if not earlier, than a lot of the Pali stuff. And so there's this kind of myth that if we get back to the origin, that's what it, that's what something truly means. But because, you know, traditions are always undergoing transformation and change over time, it's a kind of argument that will hold water with some and won't, you know, won't hold much water with others. So, and I found too that, you know, what was really interesting is when I did this research, I surveyed while I was doing this research, I was also doing a study of um, some Goinka Vipassana and people who do these 10 day um, Goinka Vipassana retreats. And I, a part of the survey was I asked them about, you know, you know, which of the five precepts do you try to follow on a, on a daily basis? And in this survey, and I just opened to the page in my book where I have the survey, it has, um, I'll just go through them, right? So it says, abstain from killing, 85% answered positive to trying to follow this. Abstain from stealing, 97 Abstain from lying, 84%. Abstain from sexual misconduct, 85%. Abstain from intoxicants, 59%. And so what was really interesting was about, about that. And this people who are, you know, who are practicing this tradition where all five are emphasized, a lot less percentage-wise, you know, we're talking 80, 90% all follow the first four, but only 59%, like practically right down the middle, actually follow the abstaining from <laughs> from intoxicants, which by itself is really t- really says something about kind of the modern practice of, of Buddhism that for a lot of people they that's not a big issue and and actually when I was doing my research for the book, I thought that it would be I really thought that you know everybody that I talked to who would use psychedelics would have to have some way of explaining you know how how does this fit and some people did some people say that oh I don't really consider say, um, psilocybin or LSD to be an intoxicant. But for a lot of other people, they, you know, they hadn't taken the five precepts or they didn't feel any compulsion to follow the five precepts. And even people that did abstain from using psychedelics later on, when I asked them why, usually it was because they, it was their own sort of rational choice. They, they would say that, oh, I found that they weren't useful to my practice anymore. And very few people actually would make the argument from authority and saying, well, I'm not doing this because my my teacher told me that I shouldn't do it. They were definitely in the minority, which is, again, tells us something about sort of contemporary religion where this is kind of view that, you know, our own experience is our own, you know, we're our own authority, right, in a sense. So there's very few people want to defer to you know, well, I don't do it because my, you know, my Roshi tells me to, or my Lama tells me to. I mean, there are a few, but there's far more that 
that just said, oh, I, I just found that they, they weren't useful. Yeah, and at the end of the day, and I guess this is, I asked that because I was curious about sort of history as a history teacher, and it's relevant to the discussion for, for, for those who care, right? But this is why I was going to move beyond it, too, is like at the end of the day, most modern practitioners, especially those Americans who are so into individualism, I mean, they're not going to not do it because of what someone said 2000 years ago. Definitely. Right? Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> if, if someone can articulate how it is not in alignment with Buddhist principles or how it's not going to help serve them today, then that's more relevant, but it's not going to hinge on that. And so sort of to, to, to expand beyond it and talk about the relevance to the modern practitioner, I guess, you know, one thing that I've thought about, which is, I find very interesting and somewhat of a contradiction, and perhaps you won't see it as such and call me out on it or give your take on this is like, people who tend to be into Buddhism, right? Let's be honest, in the US, it tends to be a very, it's disproportionately white, right? Although that's changing, I think, which is good. It's disproportionately yes. educated. It's disproportionately upper to middle class. And so I think a lot of these people were, there's a particular demographic of people who are practicing Buddhism. And also these people are particularly liberal. They're disproportionately liberal, right? For the most part, they've lived on the coast. Yes. So that's also changing and it's spreading more throughout the US. But regardless of where it is geographically, they're disproportionately liberal. And I think a lot of these people like to imagine themselves as generally open-minded, not only politically, but culturally. So I guess one thing that I find kind of interesting yes. and somewhat ironic is that when people say, well, this particular, you know, it's sort of like we have problems with organized religion, which is also true for a lot of people who came to Buddhism, right? They weren't into Judaism as much or Christianity, in part because maybe they found especially Christianity to be more closed-minded. And yet they're saying, well, we think that the use of these substances are don't have value to add, you know, that they are a sort of drug. Yet if there's one thing we can see from really the history of humankind and religions, I would say that the use of psychoactive substances is just totally pervasive. I mean, there was an evolutionary biologist recently, Brett Weinstein, who said, from an evolutionary perspective, they are too pervasive in human nature or in human societies to be maladaptive. And so it's kind of an interesting implicit commentary to say, how is it that these people, the use of these substances are right for uh, in our sacred sacrament for Native Americans, for people in South America and the Amazon, for many other cultures on this earth, yet they have no value to add to, you know, our tradition or to people generally. Like there seems to be sort of at least if not a contradiction, there's a tension there. And I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah. And I, I talk about this a bit in my book that there's a kind of mono, what they call kind of monophasic. Well, there was a traditionally a kind of monophasic culture in an American culture, especially by like the mid 1950s, early 60s, where uh, only one, there was only one acceptable state of consciousness, which was your ordinary waking, you know, rational consciousness. And so any kind of altered state was considered to be um, abnormal. 
you know, and the only, the only, you know, ex, you know, legal drugs were either, you know, alcohol, which is a depressant or, or, you know, caffeinated beverages, which are stimulants. So you can go up and down, but you're not allowed to go sideways. Whereas in what you, you know, what you said, I mentioned too, that something like over 90% of cultures throughout the world have some, you know, institutionalized form of altered state of consciousness. So, um, yeah. So the, I mean, the use of, 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 of plants and other types of um, psychoactive agents, like fungi, for example, have been pervasive throughout all of human culture. And so these kind of prejudice, this kind of prejudice, this kind of bias is, is, um, is like almost unique to Western culture. And I think that's why, you know, you know, when acid showed up in the 60s, you know, people were freaking out about it because there was and and i think the the kind of combination of the introduction of uh you know influx of asian ideas uh hinduism and buddhism in particular and psychedelics was an interesting you know historical coalescence there because all of a sudden these people were having profound altered states of consciousness they had no context in their culture in which to place them and they they went they looked towards these other cultures that had more had a had a wider range or what you could call polyphasic in other words they had recognized the 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 value of certain altered states of consciousness uh, and so for better or worse there was a connection being made between you know, altered states that were attained through uh, psychedelics and different altered states that could be attained through um, meditation. And in some ways, it, that you, that was naive because people didn't know a whole lot about different psychoactive substances or about these meditative traditions. And I think that's why, like, in, the, in psychedelic spirituality and in the, in the subculture now, there was this kind of move towards shamanism in a way. And so the Buddhist subculture and the psychedelic spirituality subculture um, began to um, diverge from each other and sort of get kind of gain a, a kind of separate, I don't know, ideological and sociological underpinnings. But nevertheless, at the same time, there's still people because, you know, modern American spirituality, alternative spirituality, is very individualistic, is very eclectic, is very, uh, in some ways, even consumeristic. You know, you just sort of, you it's DYI spirituality. You know, you just pick and choose what you want, how it fits in. So it might be a little bit of Zen, a little bit of ayahuasca, you know, some cannabis on occasion. And, and so... Yeah, so you you get this very hybridized form of spirituality, but the basis for a kind of a pure uh, this kind of puritanistic view of things, I think you know you're always going to have people that are traditionalists and are going to be quite conservative. So it's never going to go away, but it doesn't really historically it doesn't really have a, a very long history, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, and you've said two things there which are worth building on. Let's let's start with this. I can't help but notice, I was thinking this when you were speaking and we were having this discussion and then you pretty much just named it when you said Puritanism. There's really no surprise that this is a reaction in the West, especially the United States, where we're the only country in the history of certainly the West to outlaw alcohol. We have a very strong puritanical streak in history. And, you know, 
culture and religion is all mixed up together, as you know, you know, far better than me. But just to kind of hammer home this point for our listeners, you know, if you think that you are not influenced by Puritanism because you don't identify, you're, you're secular and you're liberal and you live in the U.S., I would just strongly take issue with that. I mean, the whole value system that Americans have around work is deeply rooted in, and you know, Puritanism and Protestantism and just sort of sloth and the sin, you know, laziness (laughs) is is the worst form of sin. You know, I I couldn't even possibly appreciate that until I moved to Asia. And then I learned like, oh, yeah, it's actually like, okay, to relax sometimes. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems to me that this discussion is very much rooted in that, that there is a notion that altering one's consciousness, and we see this in AA, for example, right, which is very much yeah, right. influenced by Christianity, that it is fundamentally unethical to alter one's consciousness. And as far as a Buddhist practitioner is concerned, it seems like the relevant dis- question is what's your intention, right? Because right intention is huge. And I just sort of think we have to make a link there. We kind of have to sort of work through the weeds of our own puritanical upbringing. And we can't say it's it's just fundamentally, it's either ethical or unethical to alter our consciousness. Not only is the substance rele- relevant, and there's a whole spectrum of different compounds that have been labeled under drugs, which is a problematic overgeneralization, but the intention yep. itself is highly relevant. Absolutely. And I think you see this especially in um, in in Mahayana Buddhism. I mean, one of the people, one of, one of the chapters I have is um, is called "Closing the Door: The Fifth Fifth Precept in Graduating from Psychedelics." And I I interviewed um, Jeffrey Shugan Arnold Sensei, who's the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order, and he he takes a very traditional view. And he basically comes out and says right away that he sees psychedelics as an intoxicant. But then even during during the course of our conversation, though, even he came down to, you know, because I asked him about, you know, mescaline and, you know, how peyote has been used in the Native American church for such amount of time. And if someone who was, you know, a Buddhist wanted to take part in one of these you know, peyote ceremonies or something. And then he he basically said, well, it comes down to your intention, right? So even though he wanted to default to the rule, and I, I think to, in some, a lot of ways, Theravada is much more rule governed, you know, a, a, you know, with this is the do's and don'ts of what, you know, you should and shouldn't do. But in, in Mahayana, especially when we get to the Bodhisattva ideal, and this sort of paves the way for for Buddhist Tantra, because Buddhist Tantra is, is a kind of, is a is a kind of specialized form of Mahayana Buddhism, and that's that everything depends on your intention. Like a bodhisattva can do anything that required to to save beings, and so if something is going, if you do something with an intention of you know gaining insight or or healing or for the sake of helping others, you know that that can't be a bad thing, you know. So. So I think you're, you know, you're absolutely right there. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's just, it it was more of a non-issue than I thought it was going to be. I actually thought coming from this academic perspective and also being a, you know, a student of of, um, Buddhist history, I thought it was going to be a bigger issue than it it turned out to be. And it's funny because even in the literature, like when you read Alan Watts, 
joyous cosmology, he talks about, well, you know, if, if someone does, you know, say LSD or mescaline or psilocybin, you know, for, you know, spiritual purposes and, you know, not just for kicks, right? And even in that statement is that Puritanism that you were implying before in the sense that if, you know, religion's not supposed to be fun or feel good. <laughs> and so if you're doing something that's in, that's fun and it feels good, it can't also be spiritual because those things are, are mutually ex- exclusive. So there is this kind of extremely kind of sober, kind of Protestant view that exists in the culture. And, you know, you mentioned yourself prohibition against alcohol, which was a, you know, t- complete failure. And so I think you're right. And that's informed the whole rhetoric on the whole war on drugs, which has been a dismal failure and, you know, cost taxpayers billions of dollars. And and so, yeah, there's a lot of heated emotion behind these things. But when you look at the, you know, when you look at the science and when you look at the medicine and weigh up the dangers versus the potential, you know, medical or psychological benefits, it's not, you know, these arguments against the use of psychedelics are holding less and less water. And, but it's overcoming that kind of cultural prejudice that, that's, that's taken, you know, th- you know, 30, 40 years or so to sort of even begin to happen. You know who I'm thinking of as we're talking about this? I'm not, are you familiar at all with the research of Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind? He's a social psychologist. Okay. No, no, I'm not. So he's written a book called The Righteous Mind, How Religion and Politics Divide Good People. It's um, very much worth reading. He also has a TED Talk where he'll summarize uh, that thesis. But Haidt's insight is really fascinating is that your temperament cross-culturally will predict your political leanings, right? Yeah. And so the discussion we're having now, I mean, in some ways we talked about how Western culture, in particular the U.S., is susceptible to these forms of Puritanism. I think that's true, but we can also say that every religion has its conservative and liberal elements, right? And every political group has their conservative and liberal elements. And Haidt's research gives insight into why that happens. So what he shows is that, and he's using the big five personality model to, to talk about this, but people who are liberal tend to be very high in openness to new experience, and very low in orderliness, Mm -hmm. which is a subset of conscientiousness. And conservatives tend to be very high in Mm -hmm. orderliness, but very low in openness to new experience. Conservatives like neat, tidy boundaries, right? They want to build a wall, right? Right. (laughs) And they don't want (laughs) nebulous, porous borders. And in this discussion, I can just... When we're talking about a closed system, you know, to close religious systems, and this is what well and very thoughtful people who uh, many of them undoubtedly have liberal politics, which is neither a good or bad thing. It's just a statement of fact are articulating, you know, and I'm sympathetic to it because I do think there's some real problems with the whole new agey soup thing, which we can talk about. You know, there's value in having Mm -hmm. a clear methodology, but- I sense sort of almost a temperamental thing. People feel secure in being part of a lineage and being part of a path. And other people feel this desire to step across different boundaries and integrate multiple paths into kind of their own path. 
This concludes the publicly available part of our conversation. If you are interested in listening to the rest of our conversation where Douglas and I talk about the intersection of Buddhism and psychedelics in more depth, as well as sort of the larger discussions around these topics in Western culture. And then uh, we also talk about Douglas's new book on Kashmir Shaivism and even touch on Jordan Peterson as well and how that has sort of sparked people's interest again in the discussion around mythology and the balance between chaos and order in our society. Then head on over to patreon.com slash hacking the self where we dive into all of these topics in more depth. And if you don't, and this is where you stop listening, thank you so much as well for your interest. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.